The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We're very excited today to welcome not one, but two NDM researchers. Professor Peter Fatty is a faculty member in the College of Education and Human Services at Southern Illinois University and coordinator of Learning System Design and Technology and STEM Education. Dr. Fatty studies expert learning and performance and has developed patent-pending computer applications for training expert perceptual skills in sports. His expertise-based training approach, which adapts the laboratory methods of expertise researchers for training purposes, has been applied in fields ranging from sports to truck driving to classroom teaching. Dr. Fatty also conducts research on video and teacher education and blended online learning. Olivia Brown is nearing completion of her PhD at the University of Lancaster. She is currently a research associate at the University of Bath School of Management. Liv is working on a Center for Research and Evidence into Security Threats funded project, exploring how digital traces might be used to predict offline collective action. Liv's research has focused on identifying what factors support effective teamwork in extreme environments. Specifically, she has sought to test theories of teamwork developed in more conventional settings to see how they apply to those working in high-stakes, high-pressured environments. Having two guests is a departure from our usual format, but these two guests are quite special. In 2019, the NDM community established two awards honoring two pioneers. The Gary A. Klein Award honors best contributions to NDM theory. The Robert R. Hoffman Award honors best contributions to NDM methodology. Peter was the winner of the Gary A. Klein Award for his paper titled Beyond Prove It to Improve It, Video Occlusion to Train Baseball Pitch Recognition. Liv earned the Robert R. Hoffman Award for her paper with colleagues Emma Barrett and Nicola Power titled Monitoring Changes in Cohesion Over Time in Expedition Teams, The Role of Daily Events in Team Composition. Welcome both of you and congratulations on your award. So to start, I'd like to have you just kind of both talk about your award-winning papers, uh, sort of the background and context that went into writing them, and uh, we'll have Liv get us started. So tell us about your paper and and sort of where it came from. Thank you. Thanks, Brian, and thank you for that uh, kind introduction. Um, so yeah, as, as you stated, we were interested in looking um, in extreme teams um, throughout my um, my PhD research. Um, and we were specifically looking at comparing the experiences of teams that form very quickly um, in kind of multi-agency groups. So thinking about emergency responders, medical teams, and comparing them against teams that exist for, for longer periods. Um, and that was what sort of brought me towards looking at expedition teams for this project. And what we were really interested in was trying to figure out a way of developing a methodology to uh, track and monitor teamwork over time uh, when people are existing in remote settings. Um, Because, of course, in a remote setting, it's quite difficult to do some of maybe uh, the more usual methods, which maybe if you were going to record them or run a simulation, you wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to do that. Um, So we decided to adopt a diary methodology um, so each of our expedition team members um, took a diary with them on their expedition um, and we had them complete the diary uh, every single day. 
And what we were really interested in was looking at how do day-to-day variations in individual experiences, so thinking about how um, the weather was changing, um, if people had any physical problems, um, arguments within the team, problems with leadership, how that impacted the overall um, team cohesion for, for each day. Um, So what we did was once we got all of the data at the end of the expedition, we were able to do some um, really interesting multi-level modeling um, and essentially predict uh, what factors influenced um, fluctuations in cohesion. The the main drive here was to look at, well, if we can identify some significant factors that affect why cohesion might go down, then potentially we can help um, both team leaders and practitioners who work in remote settings um, to try and mitigate any breakdowns in cohesion. Um, I hope that, hope that makes sense. I hope that was a good summary. Um, but please feel free to clarify anything if I uh, spoke too quickly or didn't quite make myself clear. Yeah, no, that was great. Um, tell me a bit more about these expedition teams. Uh, who's on them? What are they doing? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so in the in the literature, you can have anything really ranging from um, sort of a week long mountainous trail. Um, some of the literature focuses on longer lasting, maybe two, three months crossing of the Arctic. Um, now, because we were trying to pilot this method, what you'll find in most of the literature is researchers tend to focus on individual performance and individual adaptability. Um, We wanted to um, pilot this. So we actually had um, students take part in our expedition. So these were um, a school in the south of England. They agreed to take part. Uh, We had five different teams, which meant we had a lot of participants. Um, We had 70 participants in total. Um, They formed five teams. They were 20 day long expeditions, um, but they were still traveling to what we would call a relatively extreme environment. So some of them were in Mongolia trekking, others went to Greenland. Um, And yeah, the the real benefit there, and I guess we might come on to this later when we're thinking about some of the methods, is how sometimes student samples can work if you're wanting to pilot a methodology or at least find some proof of concept. Uh, And of course, they were actually out there in the environment itself um, completing these expeditions. Right. So so the method, um, what did you find? What did you experience in terms of the data and and any other challenges uh, to using these kinds of data? Um, Yeah, so um, we found some really um, exciting and promising results. Um, Notably, we found that cohesion was consistently uh, associated and and very strongly associated with daily perceptions of performance. Um, So we would suggest this means that cohesion might be a really useful way of assessing performance um, in expedition teams. We also found that um, when team members perceived that they'd done well and achieved goals that day, they um, reported higher cohesion. Again, that's quite interesting because uh, a lot of the social psychology literature suggests that shared goals can encourage cohesion. Um, So it's really cool that we found that in our sample. Um, We also found that when individuals are experiencing problems with their physical health, Uh, they tend to view cohesion as lower on that day. So again, it's just kind of raising those points to be mindful that individual problems within the group in a remote setting can have actually quite negative impacts um, on the group as a whole. One of the things I would say about this method, um, and which I've found since from trying to replicate this, is uh, there was a huge reliance on the compliance of the participants. 
Um, mm. What we're really looking for is day-to-day -day responses. Uh, and of course, when people are on expeditions, sometimes research is, is the last thing on their mind. Right. Um, so there are certainly some challenges with um, getting a full diary back and also getting the diaries back when people have arrived home. Um, yeah, it can be quite challenging to get that compliance from the participants. Did you follow up if there were major gaps with individuals or did you Absolutely. just use the data you had? So thankfully with this study, um, again, I, I would possibly bring it back to it being the students. Um, we had a really great level of compliance. Um, so in terms of validating the method, this was a really great um, sample. Uh, we, we had a few individuals from each team but i mean if there was 12 people in each group we probably had at least 10 full diaries back um so it wasn't a problem um we've run subsequent studies with adult um expeditioners uh and we haven't had quite the same um level of compliance with the mm. data collection so it's certainly something to bear in mind if, if people are interested in, in using this method right well it certainly pushes the uh the usual ndm and and focus on sort of cta is uh, those methods certainly pushes it uh, well beyond, but you're still getting that sort of lived experience. Um, did, did, the, um, did the students, what sort of preparation did you provide to them in terms of what they should be writing, how they should be thinking about providing data? Um, yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, so I was lucky enough to be able to go down to the school um, for, for a day session with the students to explain to them kind of what it was that we were looking at so they understood the wider kind of implications of the project and um, we were also able to, to assign um, a student in each team to kind of take the responsibility of, of trying to check and encourage uh, the team members to complete the diaries at the same time during the day because obviously if you had different time points when you were completing it this could obviously affect um, the kind of the, the data that we were getting out of it um, so yeah, I was quite lucky to be able to have that sort of training experience with them. I'd also add that um, in later iterations of the diary, as the methods kind of evolved, we've had a bit more of an emphasis on the qualitative element. Um, so again, probably a little, little closer to some of the more traditional NDM methods. So asking people to um, write a little bit more about kind of their personal experiences that day and not restricting them maybe in a way that the, the diary before was quite structured. Um, so the method is evolving as, as we are using it. Excellent. Um, Peter, please, uh, please share us a bit about your paper as well. Well, thank you. I was, I was really uh, surprised and obviously pleased to, uh, to get the, the Gary Klein Award on that, um, being able to get the award handed over by Gary. Um, just a, a quick side on that. I'd written an, an article in educational technology research and development, so that's the you know the instructional design kind of flagship one, and um, it, I think it was called uh, instructional design for advanced learners training recognition skills to advance expertise, something like that. And I get a little note from uh, from from Gary, and I I had I had alluded to the recognition prime decision making model. It was really foundational in, in kind of building this approach theoretically, and and just a, you know the one or two line thing that we would expect to see. Hey, nice job with that. You represented the theory well, and, and that led to um, you know taking a visit out to Yellow Springs and, and kind of an ongoing uh, relationship with that. So um, 
yeah, that was that was a really special uh, that was a really special thing to be able to to get to. It was also really interesting that it's the theory award because you know I'm I'm the applied guy, I'm the ID guy, um, and so you know here was a theory award, and yet what you called um, expertise based training in your introduction really is a theory, an instructional design theory. And so, I mean, we're probably a pretty small group within the NDM community compared to human factors, cognitive psychology, or some other uh, areas like that. Um, and this, the, the theory really is that, hey, we, we can go out in the field and study expertise, study these amazing, seemingly intuitive decision-making that's, uh, that's, that's done in, in sports and military and many other contexts. But how do we train it? You know, training is not a natural thing. Training is an artificial thing. So we're looking at something and trying to understand it. And so the um, the insight there was to say, okay, you know, how do they research it? And that led me to because um, when I went to do my dissertation, as Liv has just finished, um, you know, I was looking looking around for a project that was doable, and came across, and I was working in sports at the time. I was working as a video coordinator with a Big Ten football team, and we'd do analysis, video analysis for coaches. And I, I just felt like there's more that can be done for player training by putting video and data together. So pulling on that string led me to research that at the time, a lot of it was being done in, in Australia, especially at the Australian Institute of Sport, um, people like Bruce Abernethy really leading that research. And they developed these techniques and the techniques themselves were what's of interest because it's like, okay, they have to take this incredibly complex, seemingly intuitive performance that should be impossible. If you look at a goalie blocking a, a shot on goal, a baseball or cricket or softball hitter or returning a 135 mile per hour serve, these things are not really possible. The, the human uh, perceptual and motor systems are not sufficient to have any success at this at all. For baseball people, really nobody should hit over 100. You know, the, the, the natural state of a hitter is, is a slump. You know, it's surprising that we can pull all the pieces together. It's like a workaround. Well, you can, you can look at that performance. You can marvel at it and collect stories from the field and everything. But it's like, how are you going to systematically train it? How can we get more people over the bar faster? And the way they steady it in the research labs was with these uh, occlusion techniques, in particular, temporal occlusion, it cuts off in time, uh, presenting by video. So with a, with a cricket bowler, you know, here's the run up, uh, here's the ball out of hand, boom, cuts to black. And the research subject has to say, well, was that a wicked googly or a in, in spinner or, you know, whatever the, the categorize it. So it's a categorization task and then also a prediction task. You know, is, is that going to hit the wicket if it's baseball? Is it a ball or a strike? So categorization and prediction. So now we're starting to really kind of narrow it down because we can say that the, the, if you want to call it macro cognitive skill that we're after is anticipation. Well, how do you train anticipation? Well, you can't train anticipation. That comes with experience. Okay, fine. What is it that the experience is giving you? And so we, we can reduce that back to say, okay, it's, it's some 
pre-event cues, and then it's prediction. Okay, we can test prediction. We can train prediction. So let's take something like anticipation, which is the quality that we're after, and let's try and operationalize that to something that we can train in a systematic way, which is prediction. And so um, then the, the thing was to take that video occlusion method that they used for training or for testing and turn it into a training program. Because, you know, if any of us who work in a research laboratory, you don't have a, a limitless budget. So you're going to have to focus down on exactly the question you're asking. And if it's a good research project, you're asking a very specific question, not the whole thing. You're looking at one factor. What's some way that we can observe that, a representative task, in a uh, measurable and repeatable way? Well, you know, that describes a pretty good training task too. And they also tend to be a little bit cheaper. So, you know, that was the, that was the evolution of that. And um, initial, initial uh, dissertation research then with applying that. And I, I had access to a competing college baseball team. And so I involved, evolved a, a, a training program out of that to train their pitch recognition. And, uh, and that proved to be uh, quite successful. There were actual measurable results in batting average and the, and the such. And so that continued to be a focus, but also with this larger thing of saying, okay, not only are we taking this one skill, but this can also apply to other kinds of things, uh, particularly in the action decision-making. So I'm really looking at that, you know, not a command and control level, but an in, in the action uh, type of thing. You know, in the, in the news these days, certainly something like, like, um, attack recognition, defensive tactics, arrest and control by law enforcement so that you make good, fast decisions and therefore better decisions for the good of everybody concerned. And, uh, you know, all, all these kinds of performances that seem too, too fast and too complex to, to tease apart, but we can use some of these techniques that actually kind of come right out of the research lab, which is also interesting because uh, in, 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 listening to some of your podcasts coming up to, uh, to, uh, to this interview, you know, I listened back to, to some of the other ones and, you know, the, the, the whole NDM uh, model coming out of getting out of the lab and into the field. And now I'm kind of bringing us back into the lab. And this is really what the paper, Brian, this is, this is what the paper is, is about is saying, okay, can we take these kinds of focused uh, laboratory techniques and basically repurpose them as drill and practice. The bottom feeder of all instructional technology, drill and practice. What elements of these extraordinary performances that we observe in many contexts, they just happen to be more measurable and on TV and sports, but they're out there everywhere. How can we reduce that to something that can be drill and practice? Doesn't capture the whole skill. Yes, we're going to have transfer appropriate drills uh, to to help reach out to the um, to affecting the performance you know what and 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 the, the if there's one big insight there it's to say okay these things these performances and the training of them tend to be very focused on what you do and yet the NDM type research that you that you come across, as well as something like a quote from Yogi Berra saying hitting is 90% mental. You know, the higher you go 
in that expertise tree, the more it becomes about what you see, more accurately, what you perceive, how you process that information into decisions, you know, what you see more than what you do. So it's like, okay, we're going to push that aside. You know, the, the, what you do, we're not saying it's not important. We're just saying it's addressed. What's under addressed and gives us the opportunity to perhaps accelerate the development of expertise is this focus on what you see. It turns out that applying some of these uh, video occlusion type methods, things out of the, lab, the laboratories, we can do that on a drill and practice level. We can do it on an iPhone or an, an iPad. We can do it during a, a, a deployment. Um, and so we get a lot of efficiencies out of taking that kind of part task approach. It's pretty counter to the current direction where we've got virtual reality and augmented reality and, you know, there are going to be six or seven different kinds of reality pretty soon and all of them very exciting. And um, this is, this is safe socks training. We're not going to knock your socks off. This is day in, day out things that, um, that ball players in particular, you know, now we've got the lockdown situation, you know, what can you do on your iPhone, your computer, that can get you uh, better in a time when you don't even have those other things available. So that's that's provided an opportunity to to get this method into a lot of people's hands who might not have tried it otherwise. Uh, put it in with minor leaguers, for instance. So you know that's that's kind of the arc of the article and why it really was a theory one, even though it seems very procedural, because it really is kind of a theory to say a. Let's part task this incredible performance. Let's focus on what you see on the perceptual cognitive aspects of it. And then let's look to laboratory uh, methods, if you will, of expertise researchers to repurpose um, training activities that can actually get us to accelerating that. Excellent. So, so describe a bit more about the video occlusion method itself. What, what does this look like and, and what would someone be doing as they were practicing using it? Well, a, a, a tennis player and a lot of the early research, this, this really started in the early 80s in Australia. And so there was a focus on cricket and tennis. And so a, a, this is the tennis research, uh, serve return. So you've got video of a server that's recorded from more or less the point of view doesn't need to be like a, a GoPro on a guy's head or anything, but more or less the point of view of a receiver, the tennis receiver. And so the, uh, the server tosses the ball and racket comes through and cut to black, not freeze frame. That's done sometimes, but it's not good technique in my mind. Cut to black and you have to say, what kind of serve is that? Now that cut to black might be right after ball contact as you see the ball coming off of the strings of the racket. It might be before ball contact or right in it. And so they cut it at these different places in here. And this is an expert novice research paradigm almost all the time. So they've got kind of advanced um, tennis players and less skilled tennis players. And where does their performance diverge? So, for instance, in that one, what we find is if they see even one frame of video, and that's the sharpest knife that we have in here, so that's you know, 25 frames per second in PAL or 30 in NTSC video. But anyway, you know, you're, you're dealing with about 33 milliseconds in there. 
If they, if they see two of those coming off, okay, so you've got about 67 milliseconds, still a very short period of time, then both the experts and the novices can pretty much say what type of serve that was. That was a kick serve, that was a flat serve, or that was a slice serve, and they can do some percentage. Okay, now we cut it back to where you're only seeing a little bit of ball flight. Well, their performance both goes down, expert and novice performance both goes down a bit, but the experts not as much, not too much really. Now we cut that off, cut to black before ball contact, before the racket hits the ball, we're cutting it to contact. And the experts are still able to say what type of serve that is. They haven't even seen the racket hit the ball and they can tell you 85% of the time when random chance is 33%, whether it's a, a kick flat or a, or a um, top spin or a slice serve. Um, and then, you know, even, even predict uh, backhand or forehand side on the, on the return. So they keep, keep putting that. Let's see. And, 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 and at that point, the novice's performance drops off to pretty much the 33%. Now, if we cut it back a little bit further, now they're both down to random. So we've defined our window of expert advantage from, say, 50 milliseconds before contact to 50 milliseconds after contact. There's a 100 millisecond window in there when the, um, the, the experts have a distinct advantage over the non-experts. And so then to that, that, that's the research finding. That's your expert novice research finding. Then if we repurpose that as a training technique, we say, okay, here's the the beginning of the window. Let's train with that. You should be able to do that. People do that. Then we start cutting it back. You see less and less and less until you, as a developing tennis player, serious tennis player, are able, like the experts, to at 85% identify the type of serve when the video is cut off 50 milliseconds before contact. Got it. So, so the training is given the cue and the uh, trainee then has to identify uh, what the, um, I guess, output of uh, of that action is going to be. Is that is that correct? And then they get they right. get scored basically on whether they get it right or not. Exactly. Okay. And so, uh, like Mickey Chi in one of her uh, art articles on that says, there are like four levels of kind of expert perception in that. One is detection, just seeing that there's something there. And sometimes there's a lot of expertise just in detecting um, something. And then there's categorization. And so the, the, pitch, the serve type is a categorization task. You're categorizing it into known categories. And then there's a prediction task. So it's like detection, recall, categorization, prediction. Um, and so that's what that that we're we're trying to step right through those, and so those are operationalizations of what we consider to be that expert perception. Right, man, that sounds like a lot more complicated than it. <laughs> uh, I, but at least if you watch video, the video's cut off. You kind of get You got to guess what type of survey yeah, it was. How about right, that? Yeah, that works. Um, it's just to pull the thread a bit more. So so. The experts uh, have an advantage of identifying what kind of serve it's going to be. Um, what does the research tell us about their ability to articulate why they make one guess over another? 
they're very bad. <laughs> poor, poor at, at describing that. They can't necessarily see what it is that they're seeing. They'd almost put it into the ESP category, like uh, like Gary talks about with the firefighter story. You know, no, it's you know, I just knew it somehow. And if you press them enough, then um, they'll start making stuff up the, the way that experts do because they want to give you an answer. They're accommodating blokes. Um, so you, you really need to kind of start ascertaining where that is. And so this is where you can bring in another occlusion technique, which is spatial occlusion. Okay, so we know that we have a window in time where that expert is picking up some kind of cues. It's, it's not ESP, so we know that they're picking up some kind of cues. They can't articulate what they are. So what happens if we mask out, we use a video effect, we mask out the racket? Well, as it turns out, we can mask out the racket and the uh, novice's performance will just fall off the table and it will hardly affect the expert's performance at all, which tells us that they aren't getting their cues from the racket. But if we mask their lower half, now the expert's ability to identify that serve when it's cut off really goes down which tells us that somewhere in that lower half, they're picking up very early cues. So there's plenty of time to help you make that what seems like instantaneous reaction. And if you break it down enough, you start to realize, okay, um, if somebody's hitting a kick serve, they're going to be a little deeper in their knee bend. Their ball toss is going to be a little bit behind their head. If they're, a, if they're a slice, the ball toss is out to the side. Some of those are known coaching things, the ball toss, for instance. Uh, and then you, you see the reverse of it. For instance, in um, in Pete Sampras's autobiography, he talks about when he's 12 years old, his coach would wait. He would have to toss the ball up in the air and his coach would call out the type of serve to hit from there. So he had to learn to hit kick flat or slice from the same ball toss. And so later on, when they would meet up at the U.S. Open and then um, Agassi, considered the best returner of the time, said he couldn't, re he couldn't read Pete's serve. It wasn't the fastest flat serve. It was fast, but not the fastest. It wasn't the spinniest kick serve, but they all looked the same. And so they're going back and forth. You know, you've got two experts there on the offensive and the defensive side that are really pinpointing what that is. So, yeah, we use those other techniques, asking the people what they see is, is usually not very productive, perhaps even misleading. So we've got to ascertain what it is that they're picking it up, basically by taking pieces away. And you take the piece away that diminishes their performance, well, then that was the piece where they're seeing something. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And, and to your point earlier about sort of bringing NDM back into the lab, I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, your work is really describing more of, of just taking a much finer grain analysis than sometimes we can get from things like cognitive task analysis. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're in the field looking at things with a microscope um, as opposed to some of the more sort of gross uh, data that we capture with CTA. You're just, you're just out there really teasing things apart. Well, it's kind of interesting because there's, there's a, I don't know if anybody is paying attention, but there's a nice debate going on like in the field because there are people who are, who are advocates of ecological dynamics, 
who basically say you can't take these things apart or you just change completely what it is. You can't take it out of context. You change completely what it is. But the training implication of that is, okay, you've got to have an immersive simulator. You've got to have VR. Whereas if you take the much more probably old-fashioned, I guess, information processing approach that can part-task those things out a little bit, it may not be it may not be very accurate in describing the actual expert performance. It's kind of uh, the Newtonian physics of the thing. You know, it's still a heck of a way to build a bridge. So, um, yeah, this is that, that, that's why I say to, to, to really kind of get a handle on what we're trying to do here. It is, in, in contrast to a lot of NDM work, I think, not trying to say it, that we're, we are trying to model the the actual expert performance or expert behavior, or go back and see what kind of developments there were what in, in childhood, deliberate practice, whatever that would have led to that expertise. All of that is good. That's a good to know. But what we're doing with that is to try and identify those targetable, trainable uh, type of skills and, and then devise really direct, like I say, essentially drill and practice ways of... Uh, of, of, of targeting those. Uh, so I have a question for Olivia. Um, that was, that was awesome, Peter. This is so fascinating, but I wanted to, I wanted to shift back to Olivia for a minute. You did this really fascinating, um, dissertation project, way more interesting than many dissertation projects. And I was just wondering, how did you find your way to naturalistic decision-making? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, I think I was very blessed to have um, two supervisors, um, Emma Barrett and Nikki Power, who have both um, been involved in the NDM community for quite a few years now. Um, and they were very kind of keen for me to um, to, to direct myself and, and, and they were quite happy for me to explore different ideas. Um, They've also both got very different expertise. Uh, so Nikki works a lot with emergency services and Emma works um, a lot in kind of extreme environments in terms of expedition teams, that sort of thing. Um, and it just gave me this really great opportunity to look at two very different types of teams uh, and think about, and I remember reading one of your papers um, from, I think it was 2015, Laura, where you define what an extreme environment is. I think it was a, a military paper. Um, and it really got me thinking around, yes, we know what an extreme environment is, but what about how do we distinguish between different types of extreme environment? Um, and of course, both of uh, both of the teams that I look at are both existing in naturalistic settings. So it just kind of came to be that, that a lot of the, the research methods that I used were uh, MDM related. I was also really lucky that in the first year of my PhD, the NDM conference was in the UK. Um, it was in Bath. Um, and that gave me a really great opportunity to go along to the doctoral consortium day. And that was a really formative time for me. Uh, it gave me the opportunity to speak to a lot of the people whose papers I'd been reading, uh, get some really interesting feedback on my work. Um, and I, I found that whole uh, week experience just really, really useful. And a lot of the people I met or the connections I made um, really helped to define where I went um, with, my, with my academic research after that. Nice. So when you started out in uh, your graduate program, did you feel any pressure to try to do a more constrained traditional laboratory sort of study? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I remember 
presenting my work at a, a first year kind of PhD day. Uh, and at that point, I decided I was going to look at emergency services and expedition teams and look for some similarities and differences across these contexts. Um, and I was definitely set on looking at teams. Um, and and there, was, there was certainly a few questions from other members of the department. Um, they couldn't quite get their heads around the methods I was using. There was a lot of concern that I would struggle um, and also fellow students as well. I think I definitely felt slightly isolated in that first year. I didn't necessarily feel that we were doing on the sim- on a similar path. And uh, I think a lot of them were quite baffled by the methods that I was, I was choosing. Um, but I would say that that certainly improved as, as, as time went on. Nice. Any advice for other people who want to do dissertations in the, of this sort? I think... If, if you are passionate about it, and I think if you build on the connections that you have, um, I think if if you don't have a dissertation supervisor who is encouraging of these methods, then I think certainly reach out to other people within the NDM community. Um, get yourself along to a, to a conference if you can. Um, again, I, that for me was really, really formative. Um, and I think just be aware that, yes, data collection will be quite difficult in comparison to perhaps collecting your data with students but I think the benefits that you reap from that data are are massive not only do you get to examine behavior in really exciting kind of in-situ settings you also usually get the opportunity to to feedback your findings to practitioners and for me that was a huge drive um, feeling that you were having a real world impact quite quickly against perhaps doing more lab-based studies where it can take quite a long time to see that impact drip down um, into practitioners. Um, and I think that, that, yeah, I think the benefits of that and the rewards from that are, make all of this very much worthwhile. Yeah, that definitely definitely resonates with me. I think a lot of NDM researchers are drawn to that part of the work where you're actually inter- interacting with people who are doing really hard things and, and, and finding ways to better understand the challenges and how to support them. I think I think that is really fulfilling for a lot of folks. And hardly anyone gets to do that as a dissertation. That's that's pretty neat. Yeah, I've been I've been really, really blessed with that. Um, it certainly led to a lot of opportunities, um, even aside from university opportunities. Um, being asked to go along and speak to practitioners um, is is so rewarding and it really helps, I think, you to develop some great skills as well in, in making your research accessible and pulling out the parts that that are going to be really interesting and relevant to, to those practitioners. Um, and I think it, it's a really great skill to have to be able to translate the findings of your research, which may be relatively complex, um, into something that is, is usable and workable for, for practitioners. I agree. Very nice. So, so Liv, the extreme environments, was, was just the context of interest to you? Are you an extreme environment kind of person or in, involved in any sort of extreme sports or anything like that? I wish, I wish that I was. I think um, throughout the whole PhD, I was really hoping for an opportunity um, to go along and, and do some observation work or um, perhaps even just, just take part in, in something some kind of expedition um but unfortunately i didn't didn't get the opportunity to um i think I, I was drawn to extreme environments because it's just that idea of of 
understanding well how do people work effectively as a group when they're under immense pressure and stress and I think the key thing for me was so much of the team literature is um, born out of um, business studies or you know management journals looking at how to improve workplace productivity Uh, and I think that perhaps it doesn't always account for people working in messy environments where there's sort of intense stress and intense pressure um, relating to kind of loss of life or or harm to others. Um, and I just think it's a really exciting and important area to, to look at. Um, and I think that there is definitely team research that, that's needed and empirical team research as well that is needed that looks at that specific um, type of environment. Yeah, that's interesting. We, we tend to think that... Uh, studying those very uh, sterile and, and sort of clean environments is going to um, provide findings that are going to be applicable to extreme situations. And and I found that it's actually quite the opposite. So I did my graduate work in London studying new religious movements. And so just looking at that very microcosm uh, kind of experiences that people have where you see all these sort of social dynamics at play, that actually has more application to uh, people who aren't in those situations than I think is the reverse. And so well, what you're suggesting is by studying people who are in those kind of extreme situations is, is probably going to tell us more about how people who aren't in those situations um, might behave and perform uh, rather than the other way. Yeah, of course. Um, there was a really interesting paper a couple of years ago, um, I think in um, Academy of Management Journal or Journal of Management. Um, and, and it was basically saying just that, uh, what can we learn from extreme teams? Um, and and definitely that idea of um, looking at those who work in high stakes and high risk environments and how that may apply to people working in businesses or large organizations. Um, and I think, yeah, it's a really interesting question and one that I posed throughout my thesis is how transferable are these models of teamwork, which are amazing and have been developed over years and these um, excellent rich theories but, but how applicable is this to those working in extremes? Um, and the truth is we just cannot tell because there isn't enough research that's looking to link the two. Um, and, and I think your point precisely, I think it's really interesting to, to, to flip it on its head and say, well, let's look at extreme teams and let's see how it applies back. Um, and uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I just think that there is there's definitely more work to be done um, for people working in these kind of high, high, high stakes, high stress environments. Right. So, so Peter, you, I also mentioned in the introduction uh, your involvement with, with STEM education, and I'm wondering if, um, if you could share any thoughts about sort of similarities and differences between uh, STEM education and, and sports training. Do you, do you use the same kinds of methods uh, in both, or are, are they uh, related enough that you can – get some of that transferability of, of approaches? Um, actually, Brian, if it's okay, I, I, is it okay if I kind of follow up um, Liv's, what, Liv, what you and Liv were uh, talking about, sure. you and Liv and Laura were, were talking about within that? Because it's still a, it's still a transfer question. Mm. Uh, but looking at the transfer, because, you know, we went into that deep detail on, on sports and, okay, sports is good and we all like that, but the the value is if we can use that as a sandbox where you've got observable and measurable performance and see the transferability to these high stakes situations where there is loss of life and harm to others and also harm to the actor 
um, at hand. So, you know, right now, uh, knowing that, you know, this is, is not, you, you're, you're, you're recording your interview for the archives, but right now we are in a time and place where police interaction in very high stakes, high stress situations with, um, you know, with, with citizens is uh, a, a challenging thing. And so, um, like, I've got a, a research student now, you were talking also about dissertation. So this is Ray's dissertation, and he did a poster at NDM. And so, you know, it's, it's being looped into the, whole, into the whole community that way to look at attack recognition as a component of defensive tactics. And so that's a really applicable kind of thing. In that situation, can you make an early enough read of a movement, perhaps a sudden movement, perhaps accompanied by a lot of emotional um, expression, but for the police officer to be able to read that movement and know if, if first of all, if it is detection, right? If it is a, uh, an attack, in which case they can mentally quickly prepare an appropriate defensive maneuver that's not an overly ballistic uh, reaction, uh, as well as just control their whole reaction to it uh, because they're not surprised, because there's that anticipation. So if we, if we look at some of those things and try and take that real world um, high stakes situation, and again, it, it, are, are, there, are there places where you've got enough regularity? Because within what Liv is looking at with the teams, um, if it's something like um, emergency response, some of these things, you know, we, we'd be kind of looking at things where there's regularity. There's a certain amount of regularity in whatever they have to, to deal with. Sometimes there's the opportunity to break it down and use some of these methods and see if we can really train up that anticipation. Because if we think of those situations, if you're anticipating, you're also in control of your own emotions a lot more, not being uh, surprised by those things. So I wish, uh, my only um, wish there is that Rays were further along on that, on that, on that research because it would be helpful now, because of those situations. Trying to trying to have the perspective of both the citizens and the law enforcement officer, and the, the value to both of them as well as the whole the whole system, in in good decisions being made. Not always perfect, but but fast and good. Uh, decisions being made. So, yeah, that's, um, I've seen some folks in the past few days um, offer up research that's being done in this area. And I guess, you know, one of the big challenges, obviously, is getting the right people to pay attention to that sort of thing. Um, But it does seem like, you know, the the research in this area has been has been going on for a while. And there's definitely learnings we can take uh, and use them Hopefully, someone will take them and use them. Um, but uh, but I, I was asking earlier about um, sort of your your approach to uh, to sports training and and understanding that sort of very rapid decision making. Do do you use those kinds of techniques also in your STEM education? Well, in the STEM education, um, it actually works in a little bit different type of of area. It doesn't it doesn't use that one exactly, but. The challenge now in STEM education is, again, amplified by the things going around us in the world, and, and, but something that goes back a lot further than that, um, it, which is if, if, if we are needing to train or teach remotely, 
in those STEM areas, there's always the question of, well, you can't replace the lab experience. You can't replace the hands-on lab experience. And to me, that's the interesting thing to, to target with some of these um, approaches. You know, can we do things, for instance, where there's a vicarious uh, learning from that, um, which I consider to be still within this realm of, of taking macrocognitive type of skills and trying to break them down into something you can do at a, at a drill and practice level, which isn't that far from a, from a shadow box type of, type of technique right. either. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of something, um, I, I can remember, uh, coming back from the airport at one time, St. Louis airport, coming back from a conference. And I happened to be taking the shuttle bus out to the economy lot with a, another uh, professor from SIU who was returning from a, uh, something that he'd done. He, he's in kinesiology from a workshop he'd done in Minnesota. He's an expert in, um, in aged working with aged populations. And he'd done a workshop and they were dealing with, especially like hip, type of uh, um, rehabilitation and that type of thing and trying to understand the difference between pain and injury when you're dealing with an older patient. And I, th I thought, huh, could you have done that online? I said, well, no, of course not, because you needed to have hands-on. Well, how many people were in your workshop? 25. And so you had some people come up to the front and they had hands-on while well, you kind of directed and yeah, you know, like that. How many? Well, three had done that. So we can look at that situation and say, okay, those three got a superior experience, but if we had that of almost a studio type of thing and we had we had uh, cameras in there, you know, just a cell phone type cameras or whatever, so we could really see what he's doing, what the student, you know, the relative novice who's brought up there to, to work on that and, and got the uh, expert um, in his ear, uh, that whole that whole thing, and then involve the audience where they're they've got a poll: is this going to come out well, or or whatever, and 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 try to explore the vicarious type of learning. So it's hands on. We know that you need the hands on training. We know we need that 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 novice making their mistakes and being being guided or prodded by the expert. We need the hands on, but does it need to be your hands on, or is it adequate for it to be? somebody like you's hands-on. And I think that that's an underexplored area of kind of vicarious learning. And I would bet that within what live um, studies with teams, that when you get teams like that and people get advanced in that, they can learn from something that they observed somebody else doing almost as much as if they had done, as if they had that experience themselves. So, you know, that's, that's, I think, where an interesting area in the, in the kind of STEM education, but, you know, it, it has pretty wide um, application there, too. Again, the, 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 the usual focus on what you do, but, but the expertise actually lying um, in, to a great extent in what you see. And can we have ways of really working that? I'd be interested if Liv had any kind of uh, take on that at all, if that's something that she observed from uh, expert teams that, with their war stories exchanging and, and this sort of thing. If you really feel like they get to a point where they can really learn from vicarious stories, almost to the level of personal experience. I think um, when you 
think something I found when you, when you get expert teams together or you're looking at a simulation um, with a group of experts working together, I think one of the things not quite the same as what you were getting at, but I think one of the things that often comes up is uh, when people are working with others that they've met or worked with before, um, the idea of, of shared experiences or have knowing the expertise that that person has can help teams to feel more comfortable and help to speed up decision-making. Um, so I think there's certainly an element of, of understanding the experiences that you've gone through with another person, helping you to work quicker and more efficiently as a team. You you miss out a lot of that kind of familiarization time that you would have if you were working with unfamiliar um, colleagues. Um, so not quite, maybe not quite exactly what you were getting at, but I think there's definitely something going on there when when you know the expertise that another person has and how that affects how you interact with them and how you are able to work quickly together as a group. So I wanted to jump in. Uh, so something I ha I've been working with medical schools and, and training um, in that context. And one technique I am seeing some folks use is they'll have a small group of medical students and um, working on a, a patient, a, a virtual patient. And so one person is the decision maker, is the one acting, but everyone knows that at any point the instructor could um, change it and make someone else put them in the hot seat. They've got to be the person working on this patient. And so that increases the value of vicarious learning or the, the likelihood of that because you have to be following along. You have to be mentally engaged because at any point you you could become that person in the hot seat. So even if it never happens to you in that whole session, um, you're you're kind of activated throughout. Uh, so I, I wonder if that might have some applicability when you think of distance learning um, with STEM. If there are ways to have some some kind of lab experiences um, that aren't true lab experience, but, but um, uh, allow everyone to really put themselves in that decision maker or problem solver mode. Wow, that's terrific. <laughs> I wrote that down. You know, we could call that, you know, the hot potato technique or something. But think of those STEM, like, Brian, you're talking about the STEM once again, we're talking about the engineering and, um, and, and, and science and all these things to where you've got a, a number of people looking in and however you're, you're, you're sharing that around, you know, whether somebody's kind of live in studio or or it's just as extreme as it is now and everybody's on Zoom, but somebody's somebody's got a close interaction going. You know, they're really they are in the hot seat. But you don't know when it, when when it might be you. And you've got to pick it up just like that. And right. so we can imagine and you can imagine like the the um, the teaching hospital where you've got a surgical room and there's there's somebody down there they're working on it but then you've got the med students sitting up and around right watching and uh you know how much how much more are they engaged if all of a sudden somebody points the finger at them and they're somehow expected to be down there well digitally we can transfer them down there you are now in the hot seat so yeah that that's exactly the type of thing that from it's kind of that instructional design driven kind of thing. Yeah. Design is always around constraints. So now we're dealing with some pretty massive constraints. So when you, when you, when you talk STEM, the, the big one that's going to come in there in the STEM education is going to be the laboratory component, hands-on experience component. Yet, you know, Laura's described how, okay, let's do some creative instructional design around those constraints. And you might have something that then has value after the constraints have disappeared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, to me, one of the challenges with the vicarious learning, especially around stories and, you know, experts sharing war stories with each other is, is the content of that story um, tends to put people in the best light possible or perhaps mm-hmm. doesn't explore errors that were made or doesn't give the full context. And so it ends up being more of a, a hero story than uh, sort of the you know, rich detail kind of stories we get out of uh, a CDM interview, for instance. And so I, I, I've, I've seen sort of this uh, idea, particularly in the military, of, of sort of uh, learning vicariously through those, uh, through those experiences, you know, lessons learned and that sort of thing. But if you take a close look at some of those lessons learned, they're not uh, described and there's not enough detail and there's not enough context and perspective to, to provide the learning value. It ends up being sort of a, you know, a hero tale as opposed to a, a story you can learn from. So yeah, that's a, oh, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so speaking of experts, um, and we've been talking about experts this, this whole time, and you all have uh, talked about interesting domains. I'm, I'm kind of wondering as a, as our last sort of fun question here, if, if both of you or could become instantly become an expert in something, what would you want to be an expert in? Peter, go ahead. Well, <laughs> after, after hijacking your interview in this direction or or that the thing that i would really like to become expert in the wish thing i wish that all of us could become instantly expert in is listening i mean really listening just the ability to shut off the because as soon as you know as soon as laura's talking about you know, giving her um her description there oh yeah to, what's it how does that fit into my world and i'm wrestling with it and just turn that off somehow and just become a super expert absorbing listener that would be great Liv how about you uh, something that I'm um, recently getting into and trying to, to understand better um, is coding so looking at I'm really interested in how we can better bring together qualitative methods with um, big data analytics. I think sometimes big data is is devoid of theory or um, perhaps devoid of any uh, context. Um, And I think it would be really great, um, particularly with some of the work I'm doing at the moment, looking at kind of political action, to see how we can look at big data sets from online data and how we can combine that with looking at more qualitative maybe case study type work um so i am on a, on a voyage to become um fairly decent at coding but if i could be an expert instantly that would be absolutely amazing it's a very complex world and i am i'm trying my best to stay afloat in it at the moment so. <laughs> so let me get this straight we gave you both the opportunity to be anything that you would want to be in this world and extreme environmentalist or uh, extreme sports performer or extreme athlete, and you both chose better skills in your own jobs. I think that's a really uh, interesting response to what I, what I thought was going to be a fascinating question. Does that make right. you boring? <laughs> it doesn't make you boring. I think it actually demonstrates your own expertise because if there's one thing we know about experts is they're constantly trying to get better at their own job. So that's very interesting those are the responses you gave and with that uh, I want to thank you both for speaking with us today it's been really interesting and um, uh, it's it's really uh, 
I think fascinating to take a deeper dive uh, into your work and I hope that uh, others will explore it. And with that, uh, we want to thank everyone for joining us for the NDM Podcast. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.